Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting August 26, 2016, we talk with Anya Kasperson of the WPI Advisory Council and former head of international security for the World Economic Forum. Her recent post for the World Policy blog is headlined, Is Technology Blurring the Lines Between War and Peace? We'll also point out top features in the WPJ summer issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, new tensions between the U.S. and Iran, an American warship in the Persian Gulf fired warning shots after an Iranian fast attack boat got too close. It's the latest in a series of incidents in which Iran appears to be testing the U.S. The fast attack boats Iran has are a major worry for the Pentagon. Over the past few years, there have been various computer simulations of war with Iran, and the fast attack boats would swarm all over larger American ships. New worries over North Korea as well. This after the communist state fired a submarine-based ballistic missile. Japan says the missile entered its air defense zone. Prime Minister Abe calls it, quote, a threat to Japan's security and an unforgivable reckless act that significantly damages the peace and stability in the region. That's an assessment shared by the U.S. The test comes as the U.S. and South Korea conduct major military exercises. There are some 26,000 U.S. troops stationed in South Korea. And with the backing of American warplanes, Turkey's military and Syrian rebels have crossed into northern Syria to take on ISIS. It's Turkey's biggest move against ISIS, and that's just fine with the White House. But here's the complication. Turkey is also moving against U.S.-backed Kurdish militants known as the YPG. It's a complicated mess, to be honest, with tangled alliances and different enemies and objectives. Vice President Biden visited Ankara to discuss it all with President Erdogan and other Turkish officials. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. They do. We've got two suicide bombers inside that house, and no one wants to take responsibility for pulling the trigger. If they kill 80 people, we win the propaganda war. If we kill one child, they do. The recent Helen Mirren film, Eye in the Sky, is fiction, of course, but it deftly dramatizes the increasing overlap of war and peace in real life these days. On screen, the British-led operation to arrest an English terror suspect in non-combatant Kenya turns into a preventive drone-launched missile attack when two suicide bombers and their explosive vests turn up at the safe house the suspect is visiting. But it's delayed because the U.S. drone pilot spots a young girl selling bread just outside and sure to become collateral damage. 
Add to the mix of contradictory factors that the drone pilot and his crewmate are based just a frequent half-hour's drive to fun-filled Las Vegas, and that one of the UK bureaucrats involved sees an upside in failing to stop the impending terror attack and a downside in succeeding, if the little girl dies as well. Eye in the Sky opened in a week that saw U.S. drone strikes reportedly kill 150 people in Somalia, a country with which the U.S. was not at war and against which Congress had authorized no military action. The dead were described as terrorists, though with no immediate independent verification. Is technology blurring the lines between war and peace is the headline of a recent post on the World Policy Institute blog by Anya Kasperson, a member of the WPI Advisory Council and former head of international security for the World Economic Forum. We talked about the issue recently for this podcast. Anya Kasperson, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you so much, David, for, for this opportunity to speak on this important topic. And before diving into the question, uh, let me quickly comment on your introduction and the, the movie Eye in the Sky, which is a rather good depiction of the moral and legal quagmires facing politicians, commanders, and drone pilots in modern technological warfare. And it is important to stress that this is indeed a movie. What struck me, however, with this movie, which I'm surprised have not triggered more for discussion was a seemingly very convoluted decision-making procedures, risk aversion on the side of the politicians involved, and not, not based on tactical analysis to save lives abroad, but how to manage domestic politics. And I also missed something on the aftermath of what happened, what happened to the two drone pilots clearly struggling emotionally with erections, a topic that has become more relevant by the day in real life. Modern warfare is changing the battlefield, but also changing the role of the soldier. The recent decision by the U.S. Air Force, for example, to use civilians, not trained military, to pilot drones surprised many in the field. The use of contractors operating some of the most complex war zones around the world has skyrocketed in recent years. And in any battle, you have kill chains, those that make the decision or pull the trigger and those that enable it. Drone technology has made the kill chain more complex, and challenges not only martial values for the loss of war. Just in bellow or justice in war, the reciprocal right to kill, this fragile duality to separate between murder and executioner of the state. The basis is that she or he who kills must then also be capable of being a victim if the violence is to be honorable. Paul Kahn, a a Yale professor, wrote recently that the fundamental principle of the morality of warfare is the right to execute by self-defense when the conditions of mutual imposition of risk. Drone warfare, as we saw in the movie, removes this reciprocal ability to kill, at least initially. Drone pilots are usually operating safely out of a highly classified site somewhere far from the battlefield, and the notion of a war veteran also gets challenged. Some research, especially in the U.S., suggests that drone pilots are as prone to, like the two we saw in this movie, to, PD, to traumatic stress after the fact. There are definitely enough dilemmas, questions, and quagmires to fill a sequel to this movie, and I really hope some of the issues that this movie raised will be discussed also in the public policy domain. Well, we could have started this conversation with a news clip out of Ukraine, a particularly nasty example of what you call hybrid warfare. What are the key characteristics of that confusing style of conflict there and in general? Well, in traditional military conflict, war was fought between states with somewhat clearly defined battlefields. 
This battlefield is to a much lesser degree defined by geography these days and more defined by where the adversaries operate or where the impact is, is seemingly the highest, as we have seen in recent terrorist attacks. What makes the hybrid model of conflict and warfare distinct is the way it seeks advantage by blurring the lines. You mentioned Ukraine, which is the archetypical example of modern warfare. In the Middle East, non-state actors have adopted state-like behaviors and capabilities. In Ukraine, the states involved clearly learned a lesson or two from non-state actors. Armed groups and uniform blur the line between civilian and military. The use of proxies blurs the line between national conflicts and regional or even global rivalries. Disinformation operations and write-out deceit operations blur the lines between advocacy and propaganda. State-sponsored hacks into industrial national champions, companies in most cases, and economic sanctions blur the lines between economic competition, crime, and geopolitical rivalry. In summary, the hybrid approach blurs the lines between war and peace and breaches with all established practices in humanitarian law. To better understand you know, um, how Russia has been so successful in this hybrid approach, it is actually important to look back at the Georgia conflict. In Georgia, even if Russia military was superior, the operation was generally inside of Russia viewed as a failure because they didn't consolidate a response to be as effective as they could have been. This brought on a massive effort internally in Russia between the different strains of the military and the security apparatus to bring different resources um, together to achieve the same goal. And this is what defines the Ukrainian conflict and also become uh, a, a sign of a new hybrid warfare. Why do you see this blurring as an ever more logical choice because of our increasingly globalized economy? To point out, none of the elements of hybrid warfare looks particularly new. Throughout history, conventional military campaigns have been augmented by other tactics from misinformation to economic coercion to manipulation of proxies. However, many new opportunities for waging war with the explicit purpose of blurring lines are now being created by the ongoing explosion of connectivity and technological innovation. The accelerating pace of technological change and convergence of sciences and modern life in general is evolving in ways that make it all the more dangerous for all of us. And throughout history, technological advances have always created asymmetries that could be exploited in warfare. At the outset, rapid technological advances usually favor the attacker with defensive countermeasures lagging behind. But as the pace of technological change accelerates, regional or global balances of power could be radically transformed by a simple software update. Yet there's little shared awareness and technical literacy on how these transformations will inevitably and rapidly reshape security policies and military doctrine and also global economic doctrines. The world urgently needs a more informed discussion, which is what I argue in my article on how to manage the development and application of innovations that have both civilian and military applications. Approaches need to come from across different sectors, but before such a discussion can even happen, in my view, there's a need to demystify the issues and establish more commonly understood definitions and narratives of what is actually going on. Autonomous weapons and bioweapons and cyber war are three areas where greater literacy is urgently needed. And while some of the applications described um, in my article may seem as fanciful as the portrayals in popular culture, change can happen quickly. And just to remind you, not long ago, we were all in the situation where having a small, always connected computer in our pockets seems pretty much like science fiction, and now it is, you know, part, it's an extended part of our arm. 
looking backward a little bit, you paraphrase Trotsky to say that we may not be interested in hybrid war, but hybrid war is interested in us. What does that mean? Trotsky is often quoted when speaking about the trade-off of, of war, the economics of war. His point, at least the way I read it, is that war is about more than what happens in the battlefield. So the battlefield is, as I said, becoming also more diffuse. It affects commercial activities, trade, global economy, societal values, the dynamics you know, in governments, and therefore cannot be left to political and militaries alone. And that was the point that Trotsky tried to make, dialectics of war. Um, I have written extensively how the battlefield for hybrid warfare expanding in the areas that are key to our globalized economy and interaction. Alongside cyberspace, uh, frontiers and future hybrid wars may increasingly include space, seabed, uh, areas where satellites, fiber optic cables, energy pipelines are all vulnerable to attack and hack. You make the point that the meshing of big state proxy conflict with this new technology and the uh, the explosion of small extremist cells or lone wolves even uh, have made the Cold War's mutually assured destruction and no longer a reliable deterrent. Say more about that. Well, the area of geopolitics and technology is really an interesting one where much more thinking and, and research is needed. Uh, Mark Goodman from the Singularity University coined this in a recent article as the geotechnology, so the merge of geopolitics and technology. And technological progress has, has indeed become much more of a key driver in geopolitics. The terminology aside, what seems clear is that technology is amplifying transformation, including in international security space and in great power relations. And one such area is the looming cyber arms race, which has already become a reality. We kicked this off with a reference to the movie Eye in the Sky. Another interesting release is Year is Zero Days, uh, which is an investigative documentary trying to shed light on the origin of the Stuxnet attack. Cyber warfare, um, again, you know, powerful example, has become a reality as states move their overt and covert conflicts into cyberspace and non-state actors possessing greater technological capabilities and knowledge. And the fact is, with 9 million devices, most of it, you know, with big industrial complexes also tied to the Internet, the potential that these vulnerabilities in the cyber architecture will affect individuals, our shared infrastructure and companies is growing at an exponential rate. These same vulnerabilities are being hoarded to be used as part of an offensive capability and it's branded increasingly as terrorists. This again highlights the issue of hybrid threats in today's context and in a highly interconnected world, the options for hybrid warfare are numerous and particularly through cyberspace, but also in partnership with organized crime and terrorist groups. I always say that in addition to the threat of little green man, referring to more the conventional forces on the ground, leaders must now grapple with dark black bits on Internet and the undeclared conflict waging through codes. Meanwhile, national policymakers are often disconnected from the centers of these innovations, and the multilateral system which should address these issues move at a glacial pace and through stovepipe processes and rely in turn on national capacities to understand technological change. And lastly, and perhaps most critically, to answer your question, some states are simply not ready to subject our new offensive technologies and cyber capabilities to international law. You also raised the issue of small extremist cells and lone wolves, and I think the point I would like to make here is that small groups and or individuals increasingly have the power to be destructive, enhanced by technology, social media, and a more connected world. When you put big actors' preference for proxy conflict together with the fact that there are more lone wolf participants, and by lone wolf I mean individuals with passion, capability, and access, 
on the battlefield, that is, which is expanding, we may see the lethality of interstate conflict combined with the fanatical fervor of irregular warfare. Adversaries may be shifting and focusing mix of states, state-sponsored groups and self-funded actors with overlapping strategies and tactical aims. And between them, using a mixture of modern conventional weapons and insurgent tactics such as ambushes, improvised explosive devices, assassination, cyber attacks, to steal and manipulate data and or destabilize infrastructure and target the propaganda through social media. So my main point is that with the axis of destructive power become, becoming democratized, doctrines of mutually assured destruction become obsolete. You say that containing uh, security activities to government, police, military, intelligence services is also diminishing because so much private infrastructure is involved. Indeed, David. From finance to energy to transport to communications networks, much of the connectivity dependent and critical infrastructure that underpins modern economies is privately owned and controlled. In the U.S., for example, the estimation is that close to 85% of critical infrastructure is privately owned. More than half of all satellites now orbiting Earth, providing us with all of our access to our phones and to the Internet, are already commercialized, some of them for hire. In addition, in contrast to Cold War paradigms of military-sponsored, cutting-edge research spawning private sector applications, militaries are not necessarily in the front anymore. In fact, less and less at the cutting edge. Potentially responsible dual-use technology is increasingly being developed first in the private sector. For example, quadrocopters development is driven commercial, um, driven to commercial lanes such as package deliveries. Amazon being a great example of a company that is pioneering this. The significance of the private sector not just owning critical infrastructure, but also taking the lead on the technological advances are enormous. And when technologies can be bought off the shelf to, by anyone, um, and, you know, dual-use technologies are, are increasingly available and weaponizable by non-state actors, uh, this complicates, um, you know, how we respond to it. Hybrid war is blurring the normative delineation between the public and private sectors, which is, which is, is urgent to address it. If hybrid approaches have succeeded in blurring the lines, you say, maybe the response should be to redraw those lines in new places. Talk about the increased collaboration required among intelligence services, their larger governments, and private enterprise uh, already involved, for example, on uh, attribution of hostile acts. Well, as intelligence, situational awareness, and early warnings grow in importance, there's definitely a need to find and increase trust among the entities to combine resources and expertise are needed to keep people safe and economies functioning. What is beyond a doubt is that states cannot manage a growing level of hybrid threats on their own. And collaboration among states and with private enterprises is not only required, it's essential. And as you were mentioning, the redrawing lines of attribution require investment in intelligence and surveillance to achieve early warning. Doing so enables the preparation of a response that could either deter the attack or reduce chances of success. One implication of this new reality is that the lines that separated the military, police, and intelligence agencies will have to be rethought and redrawn. And also the lines that separated the private sector companies with the traditional security apparatus and civil society organizations working in the space of securing privacy also need to be rethought and redrawn. Basically, we need a much wider stakeholder platform to address some of these key issues uh, to be effective in our responses. 
some areas of conflict are so new they need lines where none existed before. For instance, cyberspace or the Internet of Things, linking so many of the common devices on which we so rely. What do you see there? Well, cyberspace and Internet of Things definitely requires clear rules of engagement in the context of international security, uh, analogous to the treaties and conventions that have long been sought to govern the use of these conventional arms in the physical frontiers of war. When we have an established legal framework, we just need to figure out how it applies to the new threats that we are facing. Uh, what makes little sense is to restrict discussions on, for example, cyber warfare to that of governments when so much of the infrastructure, as I just referred to, is in private hands. One example would be discussions among governments and leading private companies to define a common understanding and nomenclature of the circumstances in which it is considered acceptable and unacceptable for states to break encryption on private electronic communications, an issue that has been well covered in, in the U.S. press for some time. Consider that we combine a gun, a quadrupted drone, a high-resolution camera, a facial recognition algorithm, and to make matters worse, maybe a bioengineered virus, we would, in theory, make a machine we can program to fly over crowds seeking particular people and assassinating or infecting targets on site. These are issues that cross over not just legal frameworks, disciplines and departments and different sides of the government structure and requires a complete rethink on how we sit down and look at the redrawing of these lines. On the issue of artificial intelligence, an area that I and many more worry about as it can become weaponized and used as a tool of war, the debate on lethal autonomous weapons and the fear of the technological advances in robotics and software development would likely transform modern warfare and cause a new arms race, where technological prowess playing a key role is, could be as traumatic as gunpowder and nuclear arms. In spite of a broad recognition of the fact, the debate is still mirrored in confusion and not enough thinking actually goes into thinking about how this weaponizable potential of emerging technologies, especially artificial intelligence, will play out. There is currently little understanding on the side of governments of how far advanced technologies are to change the character of warfare. Yet little support is, is put in place to address the risks up front. Some governments would see it as impractical to prevent a terrorist group to acquire advanced weaponry and therefore want to make sure that they understand and possess the technology themselves. As with anything, there is a cost and a human dimension involved too. Using robotics and algorithms to fight wars could indeed reduce costs and lives lost, at least if a large-scale attack on civilian infrastructures or other targets can be avoided. This is a discussion for a separate podcast, obviously, but on the question of what lines we need to draw in this reality, more than lines, we need to bridge the gap between those developing these technologies and public sector decision makers, often part of the kill chain I refer to. Public sector decision makers, in my view, have little understanding of the complexity of technological possibilities being created in myriad startups around the world. Meanwhile, technologists themselves struggle to internalize the dark side of the technologies they view, often correctly, as life-enhancing, and the consequent need to govern against misuse. This is by far no attempt to spread doom and gloom on my end on round technologies, quite to the contrary, but rather, as I have for some time, tried to push ahead for this dialogue to actually happen. In short, we need a new platform to monitor, consider, and make recommendations about the implications of emerging technologies in general and AI more specifically. There is limited value in over-institutionalizing this particular area of policymaking. With the speed of change, it has to be agile by design. But agile should not be, in my view, an excuse for inaction. 
And soft governance is not replacement for hard laws and regulatory bodies to be able to enforce actions to forestall serious harm. And what happens if we fail to respond sufficiently to the blurring lines between war and peace? I'm not a big fan of forecasting. Um, it's clear to me, though, that I hope I'm wrong, that we reach a critical inflection point with the innovations um, we're seeing outpacing any evolution in norms, protocols, and governance mechanisms. The geopolitical uncertainty that's become such a feature of our time shows no sign of letting up with new crises cropping up and protracted conflicts. I tend to use rather dystopian futures to illustrate future trajectories uh, we should avoid and to debunk myths. Uh, when I teach and write on this issue, which there are many of in this field. But lately I come to fear that collective complacency, some calculated, others based on ignorance, might lead some of these dystopian futures that we all fear to come true before we consolidate an act. As incentives for hybrid warfare grows inexorably wider and more complex, we either have to redraw the lines or face a future warfare where there is really no distinct or real peace. And as geopolitical power shifts to emerging states and non-state actors and strategic competition for regional spheres or influence returns, the aspirations which informed the UN Charter at its very beginning of a world defined by universal values of democracy and a rule of law seem increasingly hollow. And recent terrorist attacks, in my view, demonstrated how fragility can travel to a place near you. If the sectarian divide in the Middle East widens, the refugees keep flowing over to, you know, the borders of Europe and the U.S., it would also bring more security problems, you know, not just to the Middle East, but to other places in the world like Europe and America and Asia, which requires a complete rethink of our political responses to this. And in a world where borders are becoming increasingly meaningless, some have called it the connectography to describe the way Internet has changed the traditional notions of borders, the isolationist responses of some policymakers would do very little, in my view, than exacerbate the problem. And I, you know, I live in Europe, and you know, I would refer to European way of dealing with the refugee crisis as a very good case in point of how isolationist responses actually exacerbate and don't resolve any of the issues that we are confronting. The technological revolution, on the other hand, are evolving at a rate that challenges our capacity and both to comprehend and to respond. But in my view, rather than hunkering down and risk triggering a new arms race, we need to establish a platform for dialogue with all the stakeholders, including industries, technologies, social, civil society organizations. We need a joined-up, forward-looking response, including collective statementship. Failure to do this and failure to respond to, say, to the blurring of lines will, in my view, result in the current multilateral system and the rules of war becoming gradually outdated and, and not implementable. And it is indeed very difficult to envisage what's around the corner. Uh, what I would like to say is that we all need to join forces to avoid sleepwalking into more widespread chaos or an all-out war. And at the core of this, in my view, is less reactive policies and action and more responsive and forward-looking um, statementship. Anya Kasperson, thank you. Thank you so much, David. Anya Kasperson is a member of the World Policy Institute Advisory Council and former World Economic Forum head of international security. Is technology blurring the lines between war and peace is the headline on her recent post for the World Policy blog. Next week, we'll continue the conversation with a special focus on social media in what she calls the global war of narratives.
Featured in the WPJ summer issue, Renegade Cities, you'll find articles about a black market for water in the Indian city of Chennai, about public-private collaboration for affordable urban housing, at least on paper, and about the problems with plans for a northern powerhouse in Great Britain before and after Brexit. And listen next week when our podcast, as promised, will continue the conversation with Anya Kasperson. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>